Hello, welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that you are here today. Before we jump in today, I just kind of want to give you a brief update as we're kind of progressing through. Uh, for those who are joining us online, you'll know that there's actually human beings inside this room, which is a strange experience every time this happens for me with the last year that we've lived out, right? And so one of the things that we've kind of planned as we've navigated through this pandemic and we've watched this insanity kind of take hold of the world and our lives and kind of schedules and chaos is that we kind of decided when, when things start to look like they're good, we can predict a few things. One is it's going to get crazier than it was and that everyone's going to be trying to make up for a lost year and a half of vacation time. People are going to be trying to make up for um, a lack of family connections that they haven't been able to see. Uh, you know, for us, even with a small baby, there were huge blocks of times where the, the only grandparent interaction was through FaceTime. And so we recognized, all right, this is going to be a challenge even when things start to reopen. So we decided, in wisdom, well, when things start to reopen, we're going to move to our second phase, which is going to be a once-a-month gathering, and which is what we've been doing since Easter. We've been doing once-a-month so that we can have these interactions, we can have an on-site gathering with the anticipation of slowly kind of working our way back to weekly, right? Because um, that's the ideal is that we do this every kind of every week. This happens and we have this kind of environment where hope and help and God kind of meets us in the midst of it and your kids are having an incredible experience. And so that's why I'm really excited. At the end of August, we're going to be shifting in that final phase of like weekly return. And the reason why it's the end of August, it's not next week, is because we're still in the middle of summer. And we recognize that um, what you may not know when you walk in on Sunday mornings is it takes about 40 people for Sunday mornings to happen here at Encounter Church, which is insane. So you can look around the room and be like, well, well man, where's everybody at? Or are people here? Or what's going on? And, and what we've watched in each service is there's different groups of people. So we're like, okay, we have a lot of different groups of people who are kind of bouncing through life and schedules. And so this room represents a lot more people than even right now. But on top of that, there's another 40 to 50 people who are not in this room who are scattered throughout this building, which is crazy. From kids' environments to backstage to on stage. And so we recognize the ability to pull off a quality weekly kind of return probably wasn't going to happen in the summer. And so that's why we kind of set the end of August as our target to return weekly. And with all that said, um, what that means is that I've been working on the fall for a while now. And I am so excited about this next season and what it's going to have for you. And part of the set the stage for the things that are coming this fall is uh, the series that I wanted to kick off today. The series that's called Faithful. And that... I don't think that when the pandemic is over, the emptiness will be over. I think the pandemic helped to be a catalyst for a series of things in our society that's going to still be around when other things aren't. That whether it's kind of cultural issues or whether it's political issues, that there's more division now than there was before we came into this thing. And that if past is any kind of indicator of the future that it's probably just going to keep getting a little crazier. And so what does it look like to be a group of people who are full in a world that's empty? And over the next kind of six weeks, we're going to journey, kind of set the stage for the different topics we're going to kind of press through and what will be kind of our season one 
of Encounter Church this fall with all these different episodes of all these different issues in our lives that I think that we can find fullness in. But to set the stage for that, I want to kind of have a series of conversations with you. Also, I want to bring in some guest speakers that we'll be able to do because we'll be online in between here and the end of August. So that gives me an opportunity to allow you to hear voices that normally you wouldn't be able to hear from because traveling and being on the stage and logistically with them leading churches would be a nightmare, but anybody can show up online. And so excited for you to hear some of those voices to help this conversation around faith full. Now, I've had this picture in my mind for a little while now that I've been thinking about over the last year, in fact. It's a, kind of a strange image. It's this one. Um, I've been obsessing over this image because in some ways I feel like this is the image that captures for me uh, this next phase that we're all getting ready to move into. The phase that we're in some ways already moving into. This is a moment from March 2009. You can't see the faces, but the two hands, two sets of hands are the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the Foreign Secretary of Russia. Now, in the early kind of phase of the Obama administration, one of the desires was to hit reset with the Russian government. And so they saw an opportunity where they said, let's try to hit reset coming in to the office. And the reset actually came from a speech Vice President Biden at the time, now President Biden, had in the speech where he said, we should hit reset with Russia. So the State Department came up with this great idea. They're like, let's make a reset button. And when we see them, let's give them the reset button as kind of like a, a physical representation of what we want to do relationally with Russia. So Hillary Clinton, they show up in Geneva for the convention and the meeting, and she leans over and she says, hey, our team worked really hard to make sure this reset button was right. And you can't see it, but on the other side of the word reset up the top is the Russian word for reset. So she leans over and says, our team worked really hard to make sure we got this Russian word right. And the foreign secretary looks at her and says, you were wrong. This is not the word for reset. This is the word for overload. And she just kind of laughed because she didn't know what to do with it. And then she said, well, that's not what we want to do in this relationship, is it? You know, it's like all of a sudden this beautiful moment to hit reset on this relationship kind of blew up in her face. Because the word reset in Russian, there's a couple different words that can be translated. And one of the words for reset is to overload. And this image has been bouncing around in my head for about a year now because I, I think in some ways we're all standing on the edge of this new chapter, this new season, whenever that season starts. And for many of us, we're kind of holding a reset button, right? We get to hit it because it's new calendar. Um, all of our calendars, all of us were instantly freed up. In the last year, if you wanted to meet with someone, it was easier to get them on Zoom than it's ever been because no one had anything to do or anywhere to go. And if you reached out to someone, you're like, hey, are you busy? They're like, no, I'm not busy. Tiger King is off the air. I don't have anything else to watch. Like, of course I'll meet with you. And that we're all standing on the edge with this reset button. And if we're not careful, the reset button could easily become the overload button. Because if you hop back in a time machine and you remember your life before this thing showed up, many of us were already starting to overload some circuits in our lives. 
from our schedule, our finances, our calendar, our relationships, that we already had the overload in our lives and that the pandemic, one of the gifts that it brought to us was an opportunity to kind of pull back and to reimagine our calendars, to reimagine our schedules, to reimagine, like, okay, if this is how things have been going, now I get to hit reset. And all of us have been handed an opportunity to be the architects of a new life. And so how do we hit reset? How do we make sure that we go into this next season not blinded by the overload? And how do we overcome the overload tendencies that we typically have and that we drift towards? And to answer that question, I want to take you to a moment, a moment that we've looked at before, but what I love about the Bible is that the, the passage, one of the, one in Christian theology, the Bible is often called a, a, the living word in the sense that God can meet us fresh in the same story. And in this story that I've even taught on before, I want to take us to kind of that new encounter that can speak to this question of how do we hit reset in our lives. If you have the Encounter Church app, um, you'll find it's already preloaded if you hit the Bible icon. If not, you can download it at EncounterChurch.com forward slash app, or I'm going to have it on the screen up here as I'm working through it. But it's found in the book of Numbers 13. Now, Numbers sounds like a spreadsheet application, but that's not what it is. But it is called Numbers because there's a, a huge fixation on counting in the book. It's a huge census document, and it's a historical document of the nation of Israel before they're getting ready to move into what becomes the physical land that we now call Israel. And so Numbers 13, Moses has gathered people together, and he said to them this. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So Moses has kind of gathered together 12 people who represent the 12 different tribes of the nation of Israel. And they're standing on the precipice of this, this new promise that God has given them to have a, a land of their own. They've been a people without a land. And so he's saying, hey, none of us has been to this land, so I'm going to send you 12 in as a group of scouts. And I want you to answer these questions for us. Pay attention. Give us these details because we believe that God's going to send us into this. Now, you need to know that the two central promises of the Old Testament, if you're new to the kind of Christian faith or to the Bible, is the Bible is actually two volumes. The first volume is the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament or the distinct kind of Christian teaching and, and history of those two things collectively combined or what we call the Bible in the Christian faith. But there was two central promises of the Old Testament or Jewish scriptures. And it was this, the promised land and the promised one. If you want to summarize Maybe this will be a Jeopardy question. You're welcome. Um, the, if you ever wanted to summarize the Old Testament, these were the two central focal points of the Jewish scriptures, the promised land, promised one. God has given us this land that he's promised, and there's going to be one who's going to come one day who's the promised one. So this is an oversimplification, but it is a pretty good kind of reduction of a huge portion of the Bible. And this is the period of history where we're at in the book of Numbers. They are wanting to move into this land that God has promised. But the problem is that some people are already squatting in it. They're already kind of 
set up their tent shacks and their cities and they're living in it. And so God has given Israel the deed, but it's like showing up at a house you've just bought and there are people living in it. So they're like, okay, well, we need to know more details about this. So they go in and then they come back. They give Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Now, that does not literally mean there's milk and honey flowing through like rivers and streams, like some bizarre Willy Wonka kind of scene. What this actually means is that the land is so fertile, it's so green that livestock like cows and goats, specifically goats and sheep, um, have so much grass to eat that it's going to allow them to thrive and there's going to be excess milk because of the babies they're having. So it's a land flowing with milk and then honey. Honey being that there's so many flowers and trees, there's so many bees pollinating that you can readily find honey. And for a people who have largely had their lives marked by living in a desert, this sounds like paradise. And it says, here is its fruit. And the fruit is this massive cluster of grapes that right before this, we find out it took two people to carry. So not only is this land paradise, it's got food that's huge and plentiful for them. Now what's, I think, just random and kind of cool is that where they say here is its fruit, and they're referring to grapes, uh, the grape harvest is this week, roughly, in Israel, 3,000 years ago, this is playing out. So, like, this is almost to the day, about 3,000 years ago, which is kind of just cool. Like, wow, this kind of worked out kind of neat. Um, it's roughly the end of July is when uh, grapes in this time period would have been um, ready to be picked. So I was like, oh, that's just kind of cool. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and are very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Now, Anak is not something that you and I use in any kind of sentence. Of course, maybe if you had a weird sneeze, perhaps, but that's not a word you and I use very frequently. And Anak, if you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath, Goliath is potentially a descendant of the Anaks. So here is a representation, this, this group of people, they're really big. It's like if there was a tribe of nothing but Vin Diesel's and The Rock, okay? That's what the Anaks are. And they're like, man, you don't even understand. Not only are their cities huge, but the people are huge too. But on top of that, the Amalekites are there, the Hittites are there, the Jebusites are there, the Amorites are there, the Canaanites are there. Like this sounds like a lecture from a geography or a geology class, right? Like it's like, no, you don't understand. Not only is there a tribe of Ben Diesels walking around, but then there is one, there is two, three, four, five more enemies that we have to deal with. They're saying to Moses, Moses, you have no clue. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Then Caleb, who's one of the 12, says, silence the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. He's like, let's go. It's like, I'm sorry, did you not hear what I just said? Ben Diesels are walking around, and on top of that, if we beat the Ben Diesels, we still have five more different enemies we have to deal with. And he's like, no, I heard you. We're good. But the men who had gone up with him, so there's 12, there's 10, and then there's two, Caleb and Joshua. 
they say we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And Moses is sitting there listening to a group of 12 people who've laid eyes. They're the only 12 people in that entire nation of almost a million people who've seen the land that they believe God has promised. Now, it's a little bit of an interesting dilemma that this nation is facing. But on the surface, it can feel like it's 3,000 years ago. So what does it have to do with my life and the ability to hit reset? Well, it has everything to do with this picture. So one of the things that I got fascinated with, well, let me just, I'm always fascinated with, is history. Specifically, I've kind of come across this research that's been um, popping up in circles that probably most people don't go reading and hanging out with. But there's been this debate for about 40 years now, 30 years to be kind of exact, around the reason the Roman Empire fell. And so around 1983, 86, a, a a historian published this theory for why the Roman Empire fell. And his argument was this, that the Roman Empire was one of the most advanced empires in human civilization. If you've ever studied the Roman Empire, it is an awe-inspiring group of people. They built concrete structures before anyone even knew what concrete was. They have buildings that are still standing today. Right? We celebrate that we've got the oldest house in America in Dedham, and it's 400 years old, and you can walk through Rome today and see something that is 2,000-plus years old. And it's still there, just as magnificent as it was when it was built 2,000 years ago. But not only on top of that, but the Romans had figured out how to have hot water and cold water run into people's homes. And the Romans loved pipes. They loved plumbing. And one of the things that they used to make plumbing, this is actually a Roman pipe right here. This is a really fancy Roman pipe, you can tell. It's got some inscriptions on it. You'll see a little notch up there, and the theory is that they believe that Romans actually learned how to pressurize water too. So none of that little drip, drip in the shower. I mean, it came out hard and strong like some fancy hotel, right? Like the Romans had figured out how to do this. And his theory was that the Romans had an issue in their infrastructure. The Romans loved to build their pipes out of lead. Now what we all know is that water running through lead pipes is probably not the healthiest way of transporting water. And what this researcher had found was that there was significantly high amounts of lead present in the skeletal structure of Roman people that had been unearthed. It was as if the whole society, especially the wealthier ones, was suffering from lead poisoning. Now, lead poison can do some devastating things to the human body. It can do a lot of developmentally damaging things. And his theory is that one of the underlying kind of decays of the Roman Empire was that they had lead pipes piping water into homes, and essentially the pipes themselves that were meant to bring and sustain the Roman Empire was actually poisoning the Roman Empire. Now, here's your second Jeopardy question, and if any of you win... I will gladly take your donation. Here's the second. So the Romans were so instrumental in plumbing that the word plumbing actually comes from the Latin, which is the same reason for those chemistry students who've ever had to look at a um, periodic table and you've ever wondered why lead is PB. It's because it's coming from that same word that we get the root for plumbing. So embedded in the word plumbing was the practice the Roman Empire employed. They were the world's leaders in plumbing. 
problem was they just poisoned their people. The irony is that what happened 3,000 years ago, what was present 2,000 years ago, is still present in the course of our lives, and it gets in the way of us hitting reset. It's the poison in our own pipes, the underlying structure, right? If you notice that when they come out of that journey, there's 12 people, 10 of them say one thing, two of them say the exact opposite. One says, grab your swords, let's go, and the other one says, we will die by their swords. See, the poison in our pipes, the water's the same. The facts were the facts. All 12 had walked through the land and seen the exact same thing. What was different was how they explained what they saw. This is something that scientists have, well, neuroscientists and psychologists have started to uncover that it's not our experiences that shape us. It's the explanation we attach to our experiences. That it's the belief that is the most powerful part in shaping the behaviors of our life. That if you walk into a situation and circumstance like they did, believing that there's no way you're going to defeat them, then you're not going to defeat them. The poison in the pipes was the explanation they were attributing to what they saw. Reality can be the same thing, right? In the lead-in to this message, right? There are some people who go through some experiences and they come out stronger and there are other people who walk through the exact same experience and it crushes them. The same experience, but one has a little bit of poison in their pipes and that they start to explain that whole experience through a different set of lens that ultimately robs them of power to change it and have impact to do anything about it. And this is exactly where they are. And if we're being honest, this is oftentimes where we are too. And this is how insidious it is. It says, As they, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are a great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. The Nephilim is another way of saying the Anox. That's the group of people that were the Vin Diesels and the Rock, right? They're like, they're massive. But notice this. They say, devours those living in it. Now, the language of that day is different than the language that we're reading. And what they actually say when they say that phrase is that the world, the land, is infertile and insecure, the land can't grow anything. The land isn't suitable for life. And it's not even a secure place. It's like the ground's just trying to swallow you up, whether through starvation or whether through a defeat from an enemy. Well, that's not exactly what it was like. I thought it was a land flowing with milk and honey. But notice the way their thinking has grown. And notice this phrase. We seemed like grasshoppers. In our own eyes. I just wonder if maybe me and you have that problem sometimes. When we look at our debt, when we look at our relationship struggles, I don't deserve someone like that. I don't deserve a relationship like that. Or I'll never get out of debt. Or I'll, I'll never get into that, that posi position. I'll never have that kind of job. I'll never have that kind of life. And we start to slap these labels on us. 
And we start to see in our own eyes something that maybe other people don't see with theirs when they look at us. Everything about their report was coming from their very limited perspective, shaped by fear. These people had completely forgotten that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And here is the greatest irony of all. I want to show you where they were when they were saying this. This is Kadesh in the desert of Paran. So these fools are standing in a gnat, and they're saying that the land that they're thinking about going into is infertile and insecure. It, I'm like, hello? That is a description of where you already are, not where you're headed. They're describing what they're living in. They're projecting what they've already had in their past onto their future. And I'm just wondering, is maybe that a problem that you and I struggle with too? That when we think about our marriage, when we think about our life, our character, our choices, our job, when we, when we look in the mirror, that maybe some of the things that we are projecting on our future is nothing more than a reflection of our past. And if we're not careful, that's the default way that we move towards our future. We just take what we've seen and we push it forward. And this is exactly what they've done. They are literally living in the worst place. If I came to you today as a real estate agent and I was like, I have some exciting opportunities for you. We are recently getting ready to expand a new subdivision into some gorgeous, breathtaking, beautiful places. And I offer you that. You're probably not going to be very excited. But if I offered you a land flowing with milk and honey, with beautiful lakes and rivers and hillsides, stunning land that Israel was, the land that they called Canaan, of course we'd want that. But see, they had allowed their reset button to become an overload. They let fear, they let emotion, they let their projection of their explanation on their situation determine the circumstances of their future. And I think that we all stand on the precipice of a moment in life that hopefully, hopefully, we never have again. Where we've had a little bit of a break and we get to reimagine what this next chapter looks like. We get to reimagine what this next segment could actually be. That we all have been handed a reset button. And are we going to choose to allow the lies that we've believed, the beliefs that have guided us, to continue to shape the behavior that we move forward with? In some ways, I had the entire year that we've lived in shoved into about 15 minutes this past week. I was... Um, out of town with a group of guys, and we'd been doing, uh, like, just kind of hanging out, fishing, and doing different outdoor stuff, and, um, and we're, we were kind of really remote, like, really, really remote, like, no cell service, and it was really good, and we're headed back to the airport all together, and we get to the airport, we clear TSA pre, and one of the guys in our group has a heart attack. He gets to the top of his stairs, and he just drops, 
We call 911, the ambulance shows up because they're right on site because it's an airport, and they begin to treat them. They hook them up, and they're like, we've got to get them to a hospital. Fortunately, the hospital is about a mile, mile and a half down the road, and they rush him to the hospital, and they right through the middle of his chest. He has 100% blockage in the artery that's called the Widowmaker, and they're able to clear it out. And when he's done, they're like, look, you don't understand. Had you guys been more than a few minutes away, this would have been a different story. The night before, we were all sitting around eating dinner, and we're talking, and, he, and he's like, man, I feel more relaxed than I have felt in a really long time because it had been a really good week, and he'd caught like nine fish that day, which probably helped him, honestly. And so he's like, man, I just really, I'm, I'm excited. I feel like I'm going back home, and my kids are going to get a better dad. I feel like I'm going to go back home, and my wife's going to get a better husband because he was kind of confessing some of the struggles he'd had just being kind of wrapped up in work and that, you know, email gets more attention than his family does sometimes. Because in the midst of COVID, while we've hadn't had to walk into an office, in some ways that's made our lives even more busier. Because we live with this facade that we're always available now. Because the office moved into our house. We used to could leave that behind. If you're a teacher, your, your bedroom or your living room was now the classroom. It was just hard to separate. And he was just talking about his struggles last year, man. I just got sucked into that. And I finally feel like I'm going to go back home and my kids are going to, they're going to be amazed at the dad I am because I'm going to be present. And, and then here we are, and we're finding out that had he had this heart attack any other point that week, up until those few minutes that we arrived at the airport, he'd have died. So I get home, and I'm still processing that because I'm you know, I literally, um, me and a guy named um, Sean, we're standing and we're praying for him while they're, like, doing all this work on him. And then I go get on an airplane, and I'm, like, processing. I'm, like, this guy is in mid-40s. He has, you know, kids who are young teenagers, and, and he almost was not present for his kids, period, forever, again. And I get home, and I'm talking, telling Jenny about it, and then I'm laying in bed, and I just start to feel my own heart hurt. Now, everybody in my house is asleep. Now, maybe you're not crazy like I am, but let me kind of bring you into my world, okay? I'm laying there, and I just start to feel it, and it's a little bit of a tingle. And I'm like, well, that, that feels weird. And then it starts to grow. And I'm like, holy crap, is this a heart attack? So I'm like hooking myself up, checking my heart rate, seeing if there's anything weird going on. And, and I'm like, okay, is my will done? Like, have I, like, is there any, I mean, I'm starting to run through the checklist. Like, this is my last final moments in life. Like, I'm not exaggerating. You're not crazy, but I'm crazy. And I'm just letting you know, this is what's happening to me. And I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to get really emotional because I'm laying next to my wife. And I'm like, what if the next morning she wakes up, I'm not here? And I've got a two-year-old. Like, what if I don't get to be his dad? What if I don't get to walk my daughter down the aisle? Like, all this is getting really heavy really fast. And I'm laying in the bed. I'm like, God, I'm okay seeing you. Like, I'm not afraid of death. But it's kind of like back when maybe some teenagers can relate to this. When your parents like, hey, come and eat dinner. But for me, it was like Super Mario Brothers 3. right? And you're like, I'm not done with the stage yet. 
Like, you don't understand, if you pull me out, I get no credit for this stage. I do not complete this stage. I cannot save this stage. If you pull me out of this game right now, all is lost, literally. And I'm having this kind of moment with my own life. I'm like, God, if you pull me out of this moment right now, I don't know if I'm, if I'm okay with the way this game finished. I'm not okay with what my kids know. I'm not okay with my relationship with my wife. Like, I think all of that can be so much better. Please leave me in the game. Because I don't want to allow this to be my finish line. I want to leave with a finish line that I'm proud of. Now, maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe you wouldn't have laid in the bed and freaked out and Googled, how do, how do I know if I'm having a heart attack? But I realized after I finally calmed down and realized I wasn't having a heart attack, that I was like, this is what the last year has been. For all of us, if we've taken advantage of it, a chance to step out of our lives and to say, am I okay with what I have lived playing out in my future? Am I okay with the mom that I've been? Am I okay with the dad that I've been? Am I okay with the boss that I am? I am okay with the husband or the wife that I am. Am I okay with the Christian that I am? Am I okay with fill in the blank? Are you okay with that? Is that the obituary that you want to be written? Is the one that would be written today? And I don't know about you, but for me laying in the bed, it was like, heck no. I want my obituary to be a page turner. I want there to want, I want it to be continued on page 57. And people have to flip there because they want to know more. I'm like, God, give me that kind of life. And that you may be wondering, well, how in the world does all this connect to the reset? It's because you have that in your hand right now. You remember I told you there were two central promises that guided the whole Old Testament. The promised land and the promised one. That ultimately the best promise of the Old Testament was the promised one. That... Israel would eventually discover what all of us have discovered. That no matter how excited you are about that new acquisition, that new home, that new car, that new outfit, those new shoes, that new gaming system, that new phone, that new fill-in-the-blank. No matter how you are excited about that new thing, eventually it becomes an old thing that you're not excited about anymore. And that... No amount of amazement around the promised land would ultimately heal, restore, or speak to the deepest longings. Because guess what? When you're a jerk in the non-promised land, you're a jerk in the promised land too. You're a bad husband in the non-promised land. You're a bad husband in the promised land too. Your address changes, but you don't. And what God wanted to show them was that, look, a change of address. You can be the Jeffersons all you want and move on up. But that doesn't make something happen on the inside. And that ultimately, at the core of the Christian faith, the beauty of the good news of the Old Testament that became the completion of the New Testament was that the promised one could do what the land could never do, which was make you new on the inside. Give you a reset. Not just for your schedule or your calendar, but for your heart 
and that, that Jesus would step into this world and through a mystery beyond mysteries, die on a cross and come back from the grave and in the process, give you and I an ability to have a reset button that's far deeper with far more implications and consequences than just the one COVID handed us. A one that says, okay, I'm not okay with where I've come. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, allows us to say that you can't go back and change the beginning. But you can start where you are and change the ending. That it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've come from. That the promised one had an ability to undo what life has done to you. And give you a redo in this next season. In this next chapter. That maybe for some of us stepping into this next school year. Walking with the hope that the promised one gives. Because there's nothing magical about a ninth or a fourth on front of your grave. Nothing different about an address that's going to change you. Until we address the thing on the inside that needs to be dealt with. The one that ultimately the promised one came to deal with. And that that trust, that turning, that hope that comes from Jesus, who is that promised one, allows you and I to stare at this future that we're all on the precipice of and to reimagine our life. For all of us to wake up the next morning after that existential crisis in the bed and to say, you know what? I don't like what I've seen in some areas of my life, but that does not mean that has to be the rest of my life. Maybe an addiction has marked my life, but that doesn't mean it's going to mark the end of my life. Maybe I've had a series of just relational disasters, but that doesn't mean that has to be the story of my life. That I'm going to move forward believing that ultimately what gave Caleb and Joshua hope was that they believed God the person was present with them and had the power with them to do immeasurably more they can ask or imagine as they moved into the promised land. And the question is, do you believe that God is present with you, that Jesus and what he has done was for you? And if you do, you'd say, I'm a Christian, then for you to go in this next chapter, leaning harder into that than you've ever done before, and know that as you lean into that, this church is going to lean into it with you. And for those who are not sure where they stand with this whole Christian thing or this faith thing, for you to lean into the question is maybe they're more to Jesus than just a good story. Maybe it's potentially good news for my life too. And to lean into that and watch what he can do in and through you. And that ultimately, if we're willing to do that, you and I can be people who are faithful in a world that's living on empty. And very practically, if you want to kind of lean in a little bit, regardless of where you are, this Wednesday night, 6.30, I'm kicking off a series called Tim, The Last Word, and it's just a summer book study. It's four weeks, and we're just going to look at the book of 2 Timothy, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul wrote, and it is filled with wisdom that speaks to this kind of how to live a life well. Later in the fall, early winter, I'm going to be rolling out a new resource that I am so thrilled that we're going to be able to offer for you. It's a resource called Life Planning. That we're going to be able to kind of walk those who've gone through some of our foundational faith courses to go through an intensive that I get to lead. It's a process that would normally cost you $3,000 if you paid for it. 
that I'm going to be able to lead us through that for those who are ready to lean in and ask the heavy questions. And by the end of that process, with some intense tools and some kind of life reflection, come out of that process with some clarity around, hey, here's what I was made for. Here's what a life lived well looks like. And so I'm serious as a church, we want to lean as hard as you want to lean into this next season. Because I believe that all of us, no matter where you are, can experience a faithful life. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity, for the people who gathered here today on site and online. Thank you for the grace that you give that gives us life. I pray that you would help us to be intentional about getting reset. That you would give us courage to maybe even look at our own lives and to reimagine what they could become because of you, Jesus. And thank you, not for the promised land, but for the promised one who is our champion, who through Jesus does all things well, who's never lost a battle, who can move mountains, who can break addictions, who can restore what's been broken, who can transform us from the inside out and ultimately allow us to be faithful people. And it's in that name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.